October 31st, 1548, the house of Cosimo di Medici, Grand Duke of Tuscany, alchemist, banker, statesman, patron of the arts, and founder of the world-famous Uffizi, this ruthless Renaissance ruler is adept in cultivating symbols of power and wealth. Today, his house has received one of its finest acquisitions to date, a beautiful but deadly new ornament from the New World. Plump and red, this strange fruit is presented to the Duke by his chief steward to decorate his already magnificent garden. First eaten by the Aztecs as early as 700 AD and called the tomatel, the tomato was one of the many plants and animals transferred between the Americas and the rest of the world following Christopher Columbus's voyage to find passage to India. The Chinese called it the barbarian eggplant. Its Latin name is wolf peach. Italians, however, nicknamed it the poisonous apple. Today, Italian cooking is unimaginable without the tomato. But for centuries, Europeans, including Italians, avoided eating it for fear of its relation to the nightshade family. It wasn't until the 1700s that they realized these deaths were actually linked to lead poisoning. The tomato was a rare and valuable import, so it was only afforded by wealthy Europeans, who at the time ate everything off pewter plates, which were very high in lead content that leached into the acidic apple of death, killing hundreds. I'm Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, your host for Found in Conversation, a podcast sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. In this episode, we look at nutrition in one of the world's most promising yet challenging regions, Latin America. We explore food culture and production in Latin America, how regional poverty fosters food insecurity and hunger, and how these factors in turn impede economic and social development. But learning and teaching others about food, its nutritious makeup, supply chain, and distribution cycles can be transformative. Joining us are David Hertz, Brazilian-born chef and social entrepreneur, who founded Gastromotiva, the first socio-gastronomic business in Brazil promoting social inclusion. Pedro Padierna, ex-president of PepsiCo Latam and food advisor. And Marisa Almidani, an investment manager from Big Asset Management's thematic equities team. The host is Luis Merino, a private banker at Big Wealth Management. First of all, I'd like to ask each of you individually, why food? And David, maybe we can start with you. As a chef and social entrepreneur, you live and breathe food every day. Where did this passion come from? Food connects us to ourselves, connects us to others, connects us to nature. It's our basic need, but also when we look with the state of the world today, where we have in Brazil numbers that so like 58% of our populations are feeling some kind of food insecurity. Food is for everyone. Everyone needs food. So beyond connecting us, it's a basic need to be alive, to be in love, to be as a person in this world. That's very inspiring. Thank you, David. And Pedro, moving on to you, you venture into this industry at a corporate level. 
How did you find yourself involved in the foods and beverage industry? And did your passion for this field become something bigger than just a corporate job? I think for me, food, you know, I agree with David, has to be a passion. But I take the passion from the other perspective, from the perspective of the agriculture. I think agriculture, uh, for me, is something that I really pretty much involved with. Uh, since for many, many years, you know, the company that I work with, uh, we developed crops, different types of crops. And the way to develop crops is really uh, working from the ground up. So when you see the different people working in the fields, especially in Latin America, where uh, the bottom of the pyramid sometimes is who works in these fields, the power of transformation, the power, the, the, the pride that they see when they begin to grow really interesting crops. And then how can you connect them to a supply chain? And later, you know, most of our products are sold to small mom and pop stores. So you can see literally creating value across the chain. Finally, Maisa, you are an investor at heart. How did you end up focusing so specifically in nutrition at peak asset management? Is the food industry something you have always been interested in? I truly believe that food is the single strongest lever to optimize not only human health, but also planetary health. So when you look at all of the challenges that we face today, both from a you know, human health perspective and environmental perspective, I think it is so underappreciated the extent to which food can offer solutions. So if we tackle the challenges of our food systems, the amount of challenges that we can solve and the amount of solutions that we can bring. And this is why I find nutrition to be so exciting. I really feel like it's a theme that uniquely combines both this social aspect, so really improving our diets in such a way to tackle what we call the double burden of malnutrition. So both not having enough to eat under nutrition, but also having too much of the wrong foods to eat. So obesity or being overweight, as well as the environmental aspect. So really mitigating the environmental degradation caused by our food systems. So for me, this opportunity as an investor to explore innovative, cutting edge solutions to the challenges of our food systems uh, and really investing in these very disruptive and ingenious companies that are offering challenges within nutrition is truly fascinating. Thanks, Maisa. Now, moving on to the first section of our discussion today, I'd like to establish the problem. What are the challenges in the food industry in LATAM? So, David, you're a chef and have led a social gastronomic movement in Brazil and now other parts of the continent as well. I am sure you have seen and heard it all. If you could wave a magic wand, which problems related to nutrition in Latin America would you solve first and why? The one point that I want to bring before everything that I've been learning as a chef and a social entrepreneur is change culture. How do you get people to believe that they have the right to eat good food? Because nobody told them, you know. So one thing, it's access and affordable prices. When you live like in favelas in Brazil, where I visit the most, or you go to remote places in the Amazon, you see that the food that arrives to a poor community, most of the food is not fresh food. We have industrialized foods because it was made so people could have their basic nutrition. But people don't have the second thing, which is the education to make that plate more colorful, with more varieties. So I talk about the culture, about education, about access, and now affordability. I already put here four ways that we can start talking about all of this. 
if we say more into the food systems, if we take the 17 SDGs, 11 are linked to food and six are linked to food systems, which we need to change, like uh, Pedro said, from the agriculture to how we eat and how we discard food. And I think to talk about all of this, we need to bring some numbers. And since we started talking and listening to MIS about the children overweight and the double burden of nutrition, in Brazil, from one to five years old, 10% of the children are already obese or overweight. 26% of children from two to nine year old have three meals a day. That means that all of those don't know if they're going to have three meals a day. And this is over 70% of the children. So we have here a whole systemic problem. And then when we talk about hunger, 55% of the people in Brazil are facing some kind of food insecurity. Imagine now, 33 million people are with severe hunger, which means the mothers don't know if their children are going to have food the next day. So I think we need to see the whole system, how to become more inclusive and more equitable. But I'm very positive when I look at the projects that we've been created over the course of COVID now, it's uh, two, almost two and a half years, we opened in more than 30 cities in Brazil, food solidarity kitchens, where we started to deliver meals to the, mo the people most in it. 70% of these uh, kitchens are run by solo mothers, women from the black and brown community. And they are turning their kitchens into learning centers, into social business, into ways that fighting hunger, you're fighting food surplus, you're bringing education, you're bringing development to a community. Thank you. And yeah, those numbers are clearly alarming. And this problem is sadly not only in Brazil. So Mexico, if we move now to Pedro, who as a Mexican, who not only led one of the largest food and beverage conglomerates in the world, but is now an active advocate and advisor in this industry. Do you agree with David? What are some of the key challenges facing nutrition in Mexico and Latin America? I, I think the numbers in the absolute are different, but in, in, in the relative are exactly the same. You know, and the ones suffering are precisely the kids, the mothers, the single mothers. And that is a tragedy because you are compromising the future of the future generations. The challenge is how people can just be feeding the wrong foods to the kids. And you see it. Marisa was saying, in the two extremes, overweight or undernutrition. One of the things is access, but it's not the only thing. To me, when we pose that question and we hire several social anthropologists to try to understand the question, to me, what really startled was the fact that uh, they did not necessarily understood the problem. Because you say, well, look at my kids. They're really fat. They're doing great. You know, they are healthy kids. No, they are not. No, they're eating the wrong foods. They're eating at the wrong time. And then as we went deeper into the, even let's say less, um, uh, less wealthy groups, you know, really the bottom, bottom of the pyramid in the states of the south of Oaxaca, we saw a lot of stunt uh, growth kids, you know, really, you, you could not believe, you know, to me, it was that's what I take it very personally. When I compare to my granddaughters, you know, same kids, the same age, but my granddaughters are big, you know, 
healthy in the sense that you see, you know, how how they look. And you see the other kids, you cannot believe, you know, the same age where, you know, perhaps half of the st- half of the height, and certainly not of the weight. And then when you do the traditional measures of wrist and whatever, they are kind of tiny. So what's going on here, you know? No, well, we have so little food. That was the insight that the father has to be the one that eats first. I said, what? Yeah, no, no, the father has to go, go to the fields. He has to eat first. And, and he was eating tortilla and beans. It is not that he was eating steak, you know? So we said, can we show these people that they can change their lives in a relatively short period of time? So we develop a very nutritious cookie under the Quaker brand. We put all of the different nutrients. We don't approve by whoever needed to approve. We say the condition is that you have to give it to the kids, you know, and you will see a change. The first challenge is, well, they are going to give it to the parents. They are going to give it to the father because it is a pretty, <laughs> let's say it's a good source of energy. No, say no, no. So we had to go with an NGO to really make the point that had to be for the kids and for the mother. And in a very short period of time, you could see the change. You, you could see the change, how they were waiting, gaining weight, how they were feeling at different levels of energy. So yes, there are solutions. And even with a little bit amount of money, I think you can feed your family better than just beans and tortillas. Absolutely. Thank you, Pedro. I do agree with you. Now, we've been talking about Latin America so far, specifically Mexico and Brazil. But Maisa, as the head of the nutrition strategy at Picte Asset Management, at a global level, what are the main problems you have identified in this sector? Are the problems faced in developing countries different? Luis, I think that, uh, yeah, I'm just going to build on what has already been said and the problems that we're facing on a global level, level are very similar. One in five deaths globally result from unhealthy diets. This is more than the number of people who, who are killed from smoking and armed conflict combined. So just to tell you the extent of, of the challenge, and obviously with malnutrition taking these two forms, either you know consuming too much obesity or overweight, and on the one hand, not consuming enough. And this is where we have a bit of a dichotomy between developed markets where maybe we're consuming too much and even of the wrong foods, and then maybe uh, developing countries where there, there just isn't enough food available. And now I'd like to add another dimension, which hasn't been discussed yet, but is also very relevant for the social aspect, which is the environmental burden of our food systems. Because today, food production is already put so much pressure on our planet and our natural resources, being responsible for about 70% of all freshwater consumption, 47% of pressure on biodiversity, 40% of all land use, and, and food systems being estimated to be responsible for about one third of, of greenhouse gas emissions with food waste alone being responsible for 8% of greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, obviously, if we want to meet our climate change objectives, our SDG objectives, et cetera, we need to tackle this environmental burden of, of food. But even from a food security perspective, if we continue to uh, threaten the environment and deplete our natural resources, deplete our soil, this is also going to create challenges for food production going forward. And it's going to put an even bigger burden on malnutrition and undernutrition and food insecurity, with about 2 billion people today globally deemed to have insufficient access to safe, quality, nutritious food. And this is a problem that is only going to worsen if we put so much pressure on our environment. And now if you add another dimension to that, 
the UN is estimating that we will reach 10 billion people by 2050, so even more mouths to feed, with obviously a cap on natural resources and arable land. So we definitely have to uh, become more efficient, so produce the right foods, uh, so use our natural resources more efficiently by producing the right foods, reducing food waste at every single stage of the, of the value chain, whether it's at the, you know, producing more food more efficiently, so using our resources more efficiently to have more yield, to reducing food waste along the value chain, to producing actually the foods that optimize our health, right? So using these natural resources that are so scarce to produce foods that really optimize, that have a high nutritional value relative to their environmental impact. So this is what I would say. And then in terms of, you know, whether developing countries face a different problem, I think here the balancing act between the environmental burden and the health impact is even more challenging because it has been estimated that the macronutrient deficiency in developing countries is so acute that it's very difficult to, for example, you know, let's say uh, sustain solely on a plant-based diet. There needs to be protein consumption, but obviously protein is a much bigger culprit of um, you know, environmental burden and climate change. So it's really a balancing act in our view, um, which is really even more uh, pronounced in developing countries. A crowd gazes upon a vibrant Rio Street Carnival laced with colorful Olympic rings. This one, more loud and energetic than usual, if that's possible. Humming with the anticipation of hosting the Rio de Janeiro 2016 Olympics that month. As the day quiets and rivers of hungry tourists and athletes settle along Rio's many restaurants up in the favelas, the city's least privileged set out for their own dinner at Gastromotiva. Founded in 2016 by internationally recognized Brazilian chef David Hertz, the Gastromotiva movement brings together communities to counteract Brazil's food insecurity, which after COVID rose to a soaring 36% of the population. Led by his network of micro-entrepreneurs, cooks, local leaders, and collective organizations, the program now serves Brazil's 70,000 meals a day with over 70 community kitchens across the country. It was during the 2016 Rio Olympics, after 10 years of extraordinary work, that international recognition was finally brought to this ever-expanding project. We know the European Union has set a target to reduce obesity rates by 2030 throughout the continent with, for example, tax systems like sugar tax or mandatory front-of-packing labeling. And I would like this to ask Pedro, are we seeing something similar in Latin America? I mean, for example, I myself am Mexican and have noticed a lot of restaurants only giving clients out if they ask for it. And the packaging of a lot of products is labeled very strongly now. Frankly, very disappointed with government policies in Mexico. And if I see in Central America, man, the governments have a huge responsibility. But unfortunately, they think they have magic bullets and they shoot the magic bullets and they miss the targets badly. And they, they try to do certain things, you know, and again and again and again, contradictory things that they don't work. So I think that the solution is that NGOs, companies really take up the responsibility. But uh, you have certain limits. For example, I remember a program that we started, the education program, with uh, primary school kids, teachers, parents, you know, about good nutrition. You know, and again, with all of the atropometric measures behind that, we tested in one school in the state of Querétaro. We demonstrated that it worked. 
We extended, I think, a step to time. We have 50,000 kids and the families and the teachers involved. So how long can you sustain that without government support? And eventually, you know, the administration changes. You know who was the owner of this program, who's the father, who's the mother of this program. So they died out. But that doesn't mean that the civil society cannot continue. There are certain groups in Mexico that, as PepsiCo, we supported. Today, I, I know that they continue to exist. That is a caquilo de ayuda, for example. It's a basic pantry to the most needed population. You know, and every week they deliver this pantry and they make good work. But again, you know, even with the support of many companies, has a, a reach perhaps of thousands, but we are talking about millions. So, so to me, it's the multiplication of these efforts. Very interesting. And David, the other question we want to ask you is uh, if you could tell us more about empowerment, does food, which is many times scarce and lacks substance, actually empowers people in countries like Mexico or Brazil? I think empowerment comes from belonging, comes from recognition, comes from uh, resources and coming from uh, competences and talents being raised. And I think food brings us all of that when we treat food with, with respect. We, we say food is not the end for us. Food is the tool. Food is the tool for people to create this empathy, but food is the tool also for me to raise my soft skills. Also, if I have some food skills like on agriculture or on cooking, I can survive. I can become an entrepreneur. I can work. I don't need to know how to read or write, I raise my talents. So I think when we talk about empowerment, the way we see in gastromotive, or then I can tell you with the social gastronomic movement we've been working all these years, it's about creating this bond that everyone should sit at the same table, regardless of the race, regardless of their wealth. And I think for me, empowerment is a chain. Uh, and I am empowered because of this. I didn't know what to do with my life until I was 26, and I didn't accept myself. So I think food was something that saves me, and I, I see so many people being saved by food. We deliver 120,000 meals in Brazil a month. And these are meals that are being delivered in Mexico City, in Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, but also in Tabatinga, in the border of Colombia and Peru, where government, uh, imagine that place, the border of Brazil, Colombia, and Peru, so many issues that we have there in a place that it takes 10 days to, to get there with the boat from the Amazon. And over there, I see the same simplicity of the cooks in Sao Paulo, a woman who cares about her community, who is empowered, who has the skills, giving food away to others, with the same empathy and empowering others, empowering her whole family and volunteers to work with her. So I think this chain that creates the feeling of community is the key for the empowerment, is this belonging and this way of seeing food as this place that creates these common values and bonds. I'd like to ask Maisa, from an investor's perspective, what role do you think that grassroots organizations like Gastromotiva, as David was explaining, can play in leading the way for corporates in the shift to a more sustainable food system? So first of all, helping to tackle food waste. So as I mentioned before, this is probably the single biggest opportunity that we have, right? I think that 2 billion people have insufficient access to food. 
and that we're able to reduce this just by not wasting what we actually produce. You know, it goes a long way in terms of food security. It goes a long way in terms of reducing the environmental burden because obviously food waste ends up in landfills and emits greenhouse gas emissions. And that creates future problems for food security because it's going to mean also, you know, climate change and less food available for future generations. And then obviously the empowerment that, that this brings to populations, really empowering populations to be in control of their nutrition and their diets. Because at the end of the day, this is what it comes down to, right? Is that if you feel that you, you know, you, you're not just a, a victim of um, maybe social status or socioeconomic status, which means that less that healthy food is not affordable. But if you know if we're able to educate people in such a way as a, as that they are able to be empowered and to eat healthier, and then that also, also there's a, a virtuous cycle that is in place, right? Healthier diets means less healthcare costs, means being more efficient and more productive, means better than um, you know um, career outcomes, and therefore a then moving up in, in the socioeconomic ladder, which means better access to, to, to healthy food. And then obviously it's a virtuous cycle that goes on and on. And this is probably how we can, you know, uh, reverse also the, the vicious cycle of the vicious poverty cycle. Um, that goes a very, very long way. And we would encourage, um, yeah, the broader adoption of such initiatives for corporates and for communities as well. Did you know Mexican tequila does not actually include a worm at the bottom of the bottle? It's actually mezcal, a closely related, smokier spirit that sometimes includes the gusano de maguey, a moth larvae that feeds on the plant from which the mezcal and tequila are made. The larvae are a tasty snack, one of many insects consumed as part of the Latin American cuisine. With a 3.5-ounce serving of raw grasshoppers containing between 14 and 28 grams of protein and contributing little to the greenhouse effect compared to traditional farm animals, this delicacy could solve many problems by finding its place more frequently on the world's dinner tables. So, Pedro, while grassroots movements like Astromotiva and small organic businesses are all changing the way the, feed industry, the food industry works, the big players of the sector cannot be ignored, of course. So although they have just been judged in the past years for high caloric and unhealthy products, companies like PepsiCo and Nestle, for example, I guess they have already begun to do a transition to more sustainable practices, right? Their scale and reach gives them a key role to play in the future. How do you see this unfolding? So I think that two things. First of all, I think, uh, at least in the company that I worked with for many years, more and more there were many efforts to feed the, the hungry, to really go after the communities, to really, let's say, activate the community groups to be more aware of that. You know, so many efforts are there, you know, and I think it has to be something that grows every year and really invites a lot of companies to do that because that's one part. The other part is why? Because the companies, they know how to produce food, certain type of foods, at least, you know, how to bring the technology. The way that we transfer technology to some of the smaller growers, you know, and the technology, it was not even the digitalization, it was really the first layers of technology. You could see dramatic changes in the yield of the crops, you know, from sustainable, let's say, uh, for their own use, crops that in the area, they can only grow enough food for them you know, to really become part of the market, to really be able to support, to sell product to, to the company in the, from the same plot of land, you know, with very basic technology and now becoming more active members 
of the society because you could see how the community changed. In your view, David, how can corporates and investors work with entrepreneurs such as yourself to tackle all these issues that we've mentioned? Well, I'm going to bring you guys now to our reality. When COVID hit, we tripled our budget. We changed our whole business model and we're able to scale from three cities to 30, find the best partners because we don't operate all of that. We were able to wrap up 16 years of knowledge that we already had on education, on capacity building, on fighting food surplus, and working with people that live from hunger. And then this project came. We expanded to the Amazon, to seven cities in the Amazon. And then COVID's going down. Companies are going back to their ESG now, which needs to be done. It's more linked to their business, their corporate social responsibility. And I had to close half of this kitchen because of budget. Because I've heard that hunger is not more their issue because they need to go now maybe to environment. And I understand all of that. Every company has their own issues. Now, some, a lot of the companies are working with racial equity, which is everyone needs to do that. But I, we cannot leave food insecurity and hunger on the side. I spoke to 20 companies that are in the Amazon. Only two of them are in the food business. They all got together to go to the Amazon when there was lack of oxygen. So they said, one of the companies said, okay, so let's go there now with hunger. And they said, no, this is not more in our agenda. It's everyone's agenda. And what, when I talk to companies nowadays, okay, we can open a kitchen for one year, for two years, but let's work systemic come like we've picked that foundation, let's stay for three years and learn together, adjust the project and have something that we can offer to the society. So one thing I think from all nonprofits is to be able to pack more, systematize everything we do as initiatives into social technologies that can be expanded. And for that, we need time. We need the knowledge of the companies. We need uh, that the people who work in these companies work together with us. I'm not talking that we need financial resources. Of course we need, but we need the, the minds and the hearts that are there to work with us. We are doing something with Gastromotiva that are engaging more the people who work in those companies. And this is the magic. So I think we need to engage the companies as nonprofits. We need to give them value with data, with proved impact, social impact and environment impact. And with the engagement, you bring them to the social. So I think as we professionalize all nonprofits, the companies work with us as part of their strategy, not part of their donation or CSR but we can become part of the strategies in the companies. I want to thank each one of you, David, Pedro, Maisa. This has been a very exciting and interesting episode. Thank you very much for your time and contributions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. This episode of Founding Conversations starred David Hertz, Pedro Badierna, and Maisa Almidani. The show is a collaboration between PICTE, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, and the How To Academy, London's leading public forum for sharing big thinking. Executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrija Rasvetayev, and Vasily Christodoulou. 
This episode was co-produced with Niall Morin. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.